the title for this morning's sermon is Our Prayers Change the World. Our Prayers Change the World. Have you ever seen the film Vantage Point? It's a film where there's an attempt at assassination on the President of the United States on a visit to Spain. And it is told from various different perspectives. It appears as though the President has been killed on the platform where he's about to give a speech to a crowd in a city in Spain. And minutes later, a bomb goes off onto the platform where he had been standing. The story of the President's assassination is first told from the perspective of the President himself. The storyline follows, the camera follows him as he is wheeled into an ambulance and then from that point on. But then the storyline rewinds and we see the same situation but from a different angle, from the perspective of one of his Secret Service agents. And once we see the whole scenario through that different angle that different vantage point it rewinds again and we see the same events from the perspective of a suspicious Spanish man who appears to be a terrorist and then we see after another rewind the same perspective or the same incidents through the perspective of a Spanish policeman And then finally, after another rewind, we see from the vantage point of an American tourist. The film, its title, Vantage Point, very aptly describes the different views or perspectives on the same events. As we come to Revelation chapter 8, John is giving another vantage point into world history from the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago to his second coming still to happen. After John's first vision, which primarily related to the seven churches, although they have lasting application for churches ever since, down through the centuries between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, he was then given another set of visions in which there were seven seals. And in, as we come to the seventh seal, after we've seen how the sufferings of this era have been under the providence of God, now we're we're about to rewind and start again and look at it from a different vantage point as we have the seven trumpets. And this pattern will be repeated. We're going to rewind again and see how God is working in the world through the seven bowls later on. The seven seals described how God deals with mankind in various ways. The seven trumpets will go back over that story and give us more insight and the seven bowls will do the same. After the seven trumpets there is an intermission in chapters 12 to 14 before the seven bowls. And there's almost an intermission at the start of Revelation chapter 8. We've seen in Revelation chapter 6 the four riders, the destruction of conquering, hostility, famine and death. And then the cries of the church in chapter 7 for justice. How long, O Lord? 
and the sky goes black. The stars fall to the sky. The mountains disappear. And unbelievers are calling out in despair as the judgment of God is about to come. And now as the seventh seal is about to be opened, we expect to see the judgment of God. But that will have to wait. Instead, there is no action. There is silence in heaven. If you're watching a film and it goes from a fast action scene through the film, the vibrant action then stops. And there's a sudden prolonged silence. You know that something serious is happening, something important. The dramatic effect is to draw our attention to the fact that something important is happening. And so too in Revelation chapter 8, we see something which is of utmost importance to God, the prayers of God's people. If you can put that on the screen, please. Thanks. F3. Thanks. <clears throat> when the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, mixed with the prayers of God's holy people, ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth, and thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. The seventh seal here has fire thrown down upon the earth with thunder, lightning and earthquake, all of which symbolize God's judgment. But the start of that reading is also associated with judgment. In the Old Testament, silence is associated with God's judgment. For example, in Habakkuk 20, or 2 verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Or Zechariah 2.13, Be silent before the Lord, all humanity, for he is springing into action from his holy dwelling. This idea of being silent before the Lord is not only associated with judgment, it's associated with the end time judgment as well. On that day, no one will be able to, to say a word before God. Oh, every mouth will be stopped. There will be silence. Sometimes you hear people say, when I meet God, I've got a few questions for him. I'm going to ask him this and this and this. But when they stand before him and they see his holiness and his power and their own sin becomes so prominent in the light of his pure holiness, their mouths will be stopped. They won't be able to ask a single question. In Psalm 46, there are some words which we're very familiar with, but I think we often interpret them in a very personal, <clears throat> devotional way, which I think 
they're not really meant to be. In Psalm 46, verses 8 to 11, we read, Come, see the glorious works of the Lord. See how he brings destruction upon the world. He causes wars to end throughout the earth. He breaks the bow and snaps the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the, he- the world. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. That command to be still and know that I am God is God speaking to the rebellious nations to stop their rebellion, to cease, to be silent. In Revelation 8, the hour of the Lord is associated with the time of judgment and half an hour or half a time is also associated with man's crisis and times of judgment. So silence for half an hour symbolizes, as commentators often say, not just being quiet and having stillness, but being quiet before God's judgment. And yet before we go straight into judgment in Revelation 8 verse 5, we don't go straight into it. Before that, we see the seven angels blow the seven trumpets. Before we see them blow the seven trumpets, we see another angel who says, as John describes, then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. And a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. The prayers of God's people offered up to God with incense by the angel. This angel might be the angel of God's presence as in Isaiah 63 verse 9 or more likely, commentators think, the Lord himself. He offers the prayer of the saints to God mixed with incense. The scene here is an extension of chapter 6 where God's people who are under the altar prayed, How long, O Lord? How long? And here in in the first five verses of chapter 8, the altar is mentioned three times. Notice what's happening in the mixing of the prayers with the incense. God appoints an angel with a gold incense burner to stand at the altar, and he has a great amount of incense given to the angel. And the smoke of the incense ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. But the incense is mixed with the prayers of God's people, the prayers of the saints, as we read in other translations. In the New Testament, when we read the word saints, that simply means those who are sanctified. And that means us, anyone who has trusted in Jesus. That's what the word saints means in the Bible. Anyone who is a believer, anyone who has been forgiven through faith in Jesus. Jesus. 
In the temple, in the Old Testament, the altar of incense symbolized the prayers of God's people, such as in Exodus 20. And the prayers of God's people and incense are linked here in Revelation 5, verse 8. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And so the idea being given is that prayer and incense are inextricably linked together. In Psalm 141, David prays, Accept my prayer as incense offered to you, and my upraised hands as an evening offering. And so here in Revelation chapter 8, we have a picture of God giving incense to be offered and mixing it with the prayers of God's people and it being offered up to him. If the incense is the same as that in Revelation chapter 5 verse 8, we conclude that it is God who gives or who inspires the prayers of his people. And then they are added to that and offered back up to him. The mixing of incense provided by God with the prayers of God's people illustrates two truths. One is that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we pray. In Romans 8 we read, And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed with words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us, believers, in harmony with God's own will. Our prayers might not sound impressive, and they're not meant to be impressive on their own, but we have the Holy Spirit empowering them. We We might not be able to rise a crowd by our rhetoric by our ability to to give a good speech by our we're we're not skilled in impressing people but we don't have to we're we're not skilled in impressing god it's not about impressing him god takes our feeble prayers and the holy spirit takes them and presents them to the father as perfect powerful prayers When the Holy Spirit turbocharges our prayers, they ascend to God, not as feeble words that we say, but as spirit-empowered, God-inspired prayers that God hears and God answers. When God's children pray, God listens because God takes our prayers, perfects them, and responds to them. Sometimes when we come to God in prayer, we don't know what to say. Sometimes we come in prayer and we're able to just say what we want, but at other times it's almost as if our hearts are just aching and and groaning and we come to God and we're almost lost for words at times. And we say a few fumbling words, but the Spirit knows our heart's concerns and the Spirit takes our faltering words, our groanings, and takes them up to the Father. And he hears our prayers. 
And Jesus, secondly, intercedes for us too. But that's... Jesus' intercession for us is arguably more to do with our righteousness, our right standing before God, our justification, than with our prayer, I would suggest. Paul says in Romans 8, "Who, Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting in the right hand of God, right in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. In Hebrews 7.25 we read, Therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. John makes it even clearer. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. Jesus intercedes on our behalf with respect to our righteousness, our right standing before the Father. And the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with respect to our prayers being heard by the Father. That's powerful. To think that that our feeble prayers are presented perfectly to the Father by the work of the Holy Spirit. When you pray, how do you imagine God hears your prayers? Do you think he's looking down and saying, well, you didn't ask that very well. I don't really understand what he's saying, what she's saying. What, what are they asking for? They're not very clear here. Or do you think God is disinterested? Or... Maybe he, he just doesn't have time for us. Is it like the orphan Oliver in Charles Dickens's novel? So you might be more familiar with the musical where Oliver, who is in a harsh orphanage, after getting some food, he, he hasn't had enough to eat. And he speaks, but he's taken up to the master and he has to stand before him. And he's asked, what do you want to say? And he says, please, sir, I want some more. And the master says, more? The arrogance of this young child asking for more? Sometimes people have that approach to God thinking, he's not really going to answer my prayer. But that's not how the father considers us. That's not how he responds to our prayers. He longs to hear our prayers. He welcomes our prayers. He takes our feeble prayers and he perfects them by the Spirit. Imagine a young school child standing in the principal's office. They're overawed by the power and authority of the principal. This is the most important the most authority-laden room in the school. People don't go in there unless there's something important going on. And this young child has something to say, but they speak in a faltering, soft voice. Anyone listening would find it hard to make out what they're saying. It doesn't seem to make sense as they fumble for words trying to, to say something to the principal. And yet... 
They're not alone in the room with the principal. Standing beside them is their teacher with a hand on their shoulder. And the the teacher smiles and says to the principal, I think what they're trying to say is this. And they present the argument exactly, perfectly. And the principal smiles and grants the request of the young child. And the teacher walks back to the classroom. It says to the child, no, that wasn't so difficult. I'll always be with you to speak on your behalf. And that's more like what it is when, when we come to pray to the Father. The, the Holy Spirit is with us, presenting our requests perfectly to the Father. Some people are hesitant to come to God in prayer because they don't know how to pray. Some people don't think God will listen to them, but if we've trusted in Jesus, we have open access. We're a holy priesthood. We can come into God's presence on our own. We don't need somebody else to do it for us. We have the mediator, Jesus Christ, and by his spirit, our prayers are presented to the Father. We don't have to raise our voice, although there's times when being fervent in prayer is is justified. We don't have to repeat ourselves endlessly, hoping that maybe God will hear us the more we say it. Jesus says, don't pray like that. When we come to pray, well, sometimes we don't have what we, what we want because we don't come to pray, James tells us. And when we do come to pray, sometimes we're asking for the wrong things. And you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what gives you pleasure. In terms of knowing how to pray, right? Jesus has taught us. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need, even before you ask him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Firstly, we pray to God, about God, about his concerns. Then we pray for ourselves. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we, we pray according to his will, we know we have what we ask. John tells us in 1 John 5.15. And we know God's will is to provide for us. So we can be sure, we can rest assured that he will answer those prayers. When we pray, we're asking God to change things. But the more we pray, the more we find that not only does God change things, but God changes us too. The closer we get to God, the more we find that we're not 
praying as James said, you're praying for the wrong things. We find that the closer we get to God, the more we are in line with his will and praying for his will to be done. In a very real sense, it's not just praying to God to try and change his mind to do things that need done. In a very real sense, it's we're coming in line with his will and he is including us in making things happen. He is more than willing to answer our prayers and it is he who inspires our prayers, our godly prayers, so that he can then answer them. And it's the Holy Spirit who motivates us to pray. Let's not grieve the Spirit by our lack of prayer. But if God is sovereign, if God is in control, if God is almighty, why should we pray? The answer is that because in God's grace towards us, he has included us. He's given us the privilege of being included in how he is saving the world. We're not just bystanders watching as God works out his will through the course of time. We are essential to how God is actually making things happen. Imagine a world-famous musician giving concerts so virtuoso, so accomplished. And they can give concerts wherever they want and get such great applause But they choose, instead of just being the only one who does a perfect job, they choose to bring their their family, their children on stage with them as well. And the children aren't great musicians, but they make sure that what they do works. And it's not that these children are needed in order to, to make a great performance. The performance could be perfect without them. But they are included They're included on stage just because their father wants to include them and give them the privilege of being there with him. Or imagine Jesus when he was a young child, maybe about eight or nine, and he's starting to help Joseph in his carpentry work. Imagine Joseph about to build a great piece of furniture or something great out of wood. And as he starts, he asks Jesus to help him. And he knows that he can make it probably better and faster without him. But he patiently waits as the child begins to start to use a saw or a hammer. He steadies his hand. He helps him cut the wood. It takes more time. But in the end, Joseph can say to Mary, look what we have done. Not just look what I have done, but look what we have done. There's a real sense in which God includes us in making change happen in the world because he wants to give us the privilege of being involved. He can do it without us, but he's chosen to do it with us. That's what those words in Matthew 16 Verse 19 are all about. Jesus says to Peter, as representative of the church, he's saying to the church through Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is God's contract language. God is including us in such a way that if we pray for something on earth, it will be done in heaven. And if we don't pray for something on earth, it won't be granted in heaven. If we evangelize, if we share the gospel here on earth, people will hear, people will respond in faith. But if we don't share the gospel, well, there is no plan B. People will not be saved. God includes us in his will being done by giving us the privilege of prayer, evangelism and other forms of ministry. Prayer changes things. I've used this illustration before, but it's helpful. An Australian, Brian Ronfeldt, said that his wife Angie went to Rough High School. There were few Christians there apart from one teacher, and he taught art. Years after leaving his classroom, dozens of his former students became believers. Many have entered into the ministry and become pastors and missionaries, And she tracked down Bunton, who was now 70 years old and retired. And he was stunned with emotion when he was told of how so many of his former students had not only trusted in the Lord, but been so effective in ministry in different ways. And she asked how his influence had brought such a harvest. And he said that, Simply many times he had prayed softly over the classes as he sat at his desk and watched them work. Apart from that, he had done nothing to influence these students towards Christ. And the only common point of spiritual connection the students shared was that they were prayed over by a teacher. Prayer changes things. One of the most famous examples of the effectiveness of God's prayer or the prayer of God's people was John Knox, one of the Reformation's greatest prayer warriors. When he prayed, things happened. His prayer shook Scotland. They caused a revival amongst God's people. At one point he prayed in anguish, God, give me Scotland or I die. And God gave him so much, so many people in Scotland turned to the Lord. He wasn't a perfect man, but God took his prayers, mixed them with the incense of the Holy Spirit, and answered them powerfully. Mary, Queen of Scots, is said to have said, I feared John Knox's prayers more than all the assembled armies of Europe. The prayers of God's people are effective. The prayers of an ordinary Christian, James tells us in James 5, are effective, just like Elijah. He was an ordinary man, just like us. And in Revelation chapter 8, God takes the prayers of his people and mixes them with the incense and then pours them out on the earth. Then the angel filled the incense burner with the fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth. And thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. 
The symbolism here is that what happens on earth, God's judgments on earth, are not simply his acts alone, but they're the, also the answers to the prayers of God's people. How long, O oh Lord, how long? And God is bringing about the end of this age. And he is bringing in the new age where there will be no more tears or sorrow or suffering or pain any longer. He is coming soon. When we pray, God, please save our brothers and sisters who are persecuted. Please advance the cause of the gospel. Please stop the oppression and the injustice. God sends his judgments on the nations. God changes things in the world. But more than just having a, an impact generally, the thrust of the words here in Revelation 8.5 point to God's final judgment to come. The final outworking of this is God's wrath being poured out on the nations in judgment, which was already described in the sixth seal in chapter 6. God's answer to our prayers is also followed by and is itself the answer also by the seven trumpets. In response to the prayers of God's people, all of God's people, the seven trumpets begin. And just like the Israelites went around Jericho, just marching for seven days, and on the seventh day the trumpets sounded and the walls fell down. Here in Revelation 8, the trumpets are associated with God's judgment over the nations. Then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blasts. The first angel blew his trumpet and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One third of the earth was set on fire, one third of the trees were burned and all of the green grass was burned. Then the second angel blew his trumpet and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One third of the water in the sea became blood, one third of all living things, things living in the sea died and one third of all the ships in the sea were destroyed. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Bitterness. It made one third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Then one, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one third of the sun was struck, and one third of the moon and one third of the stars and they became dark and one third of the day was dark and also one third of the night then I looked and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air terror, terror, terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets We don't want to be around when that happens. That this is apocalyptic. This is judgment language. When we look out at the world around us, we don't see judgment about to come upon us. We see the world going on day after day. We see God's patience with us day after day. But he is warning us. In his word, he warns us. And although the sufferings to come on the judgment day are significant God is giving us a foretaste a warning 
here and now. These judgments that are being given out are probably best. A good number of commentators interpret them as being not just on the end times. These are going to happen just before the Lord comes. Some interpret that, but many interpret that this is what's happening from Christ first came to when he will come again during the era of the church. The fact that we have suffering in this world, the fact that we have natural disasters in this world, the fact that we're experiencing the things to some extent which have been described in chapters 5, 6 and and 8. God is in a sense pouring out his wrath on us already to a very limited degree in Romans 1.18 the wrath of God is being revealed against all kinds of ungodliness is being revealed the suffering that we are going on is God's wrath on the world this is judgment as well as warning God doesn't want to be judgeful. God doesn't delight in judgment. He prefers mercy. And so God gives us warnings to turn us back. How should we interpret these first four trumpets? Well, the best way is to to know our Old Testament. They parallel some of the plagues that Moses called down on Pharaoh in Egypt as Pharaoh, as Egypt oppressed God's people and resisted God's will. The first trumpet corresponds to the hail and fire in Exodus 9. The second and third to the plague on the Nile turning blood red in Exodus chapter 7. The fourth trumpet corresponds to the plague of darkness that came over the land in Exodus chapter 10. And because of the close parallel with Moses calling upon Pharaoh to let God's people go to stop the oppression. The trumpets here can be seen to have the same impact as the plagues did then. They were warnings that they should stop resisting God's will and obey him. They were also judgments for not having obeyed him. The judgments of God on the earth, war, famine, earthquake, disaster, illness, suffering, are on the one hand God's judgment on our sin, on sinful humanity. But on the other hand, they are God's gracious call. Romans chapter 2 says, Do you not realize that God's patience is meant to bring you to repentance? They're an early warning sign of things to come. They're God's way of saying, turn to me now before something worse happens. Jesus said, putting the blame on the one who introduced sin into the world, that is on the devil, he said, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. God patiently calls us to turn to him. But we so often ignore his gentle call. As a last resort to get our attention, to warn us, to save us, 
As C.S. Lewis generalizes in his book, The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. Suffering can drive us away from God or drive us towards him. Let's let it drive us towards him. Jesus lovingly calls each one of us, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. The sufferings that we experience in this world should drive us to God in prayer. Should drive us to Christ, should drive us to the cross for forgiveness but should also drive us to God to change things. We pray to God to change things because things need changed. Injustices need righted. And God inspires our prayers, perfects our prayers with the incense of the Holy Spirit, hears and answers our prayers, and he includes us in making change happen in the world. We don't want to be judged as the other nations. We want to enter into eternal life with God, with Christ forever. We need to turn to him and see that these judgments are to turn us towards him. But once we have turned towards him, we should pray We should pray for people to come to faith. We should pray for injustice to be stopped. We should pray for the Lord to change things in the world. Knowing that God hears our prayers. Knowing that he perfects our prayers. That they go up to him as incense. Pure and perfect incense. A sweet smelling aroma. Let's pray for God's forgiveness, trusting that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And let's pray for God's deliverance, knowing that he's going to end all injustice and judge the world in righteousness with justice, bringing in eternal life for each one of us who trust in him. Prayer changes things. God answers prayer and changes things in the world. Let's pray. And let's see change happen. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you not only bring us into a right relationship with you through faith in Jesus, but by your Spirit, you take our feeble and faltering prayers and they are perfected. And you hear and you answer them. We thank you that you give us the incense that inspires our prayers and then that is offered back up to you. Father, we pray that that you will change so, so much, that you will change the hearts and minds of people in our families, in our workplaces, in our community. Lord, that they will turn to you and not experience you on that day as simply their judge, but know you already as their saviour. Lord, help us to pray. Forgive us for our lack of prayer. Forgive us for praying for the wrong things. 
Lord, inspire our prayer and answer our prayer. May we pray more and more and see more and more happen. In Jesus' name, amen.